0: Well, good morning, everyone. It is a delight to see all of you here today. To those of you online, welcome to you as well. We are very thankful that you can join us through the wonders of the Internet. and Hopefully it will cooperate um, today. It is a delight, a delight to see all of you here looking forward to a wonderful time in God's Word. Um, We're back in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, chapter 24, once again. Last time we looked at the first seven verses. I'm going to go ahead and read the entire chapter again, though, so that we have the full scope of this account before us. Uh, I would invite you, please, as you're able, to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. 1 Samuel 24, beginning at verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which Yahweh said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, Yahweh forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. Yahweh's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is Yahweh's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up, left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how Yahweh gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you. But I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is Yahweh's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May Yahweh judge between me and you. May Yahweh avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the Proverbs of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May Yahweh therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it, and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when Yahweh put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may Yahweh reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by Yahweh that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. So last week, we entered into an examination of this remarkable account in the life of David, where after uh, a very long time of being chased around by Saul and and as you may remember, those of you that were uh, here before and heard the message uh, about the, uh, uh, the little running around in the wilderness when Saul just about caught David they were on opposite sides of the mountain and kind of jockeying around to try to uh, uh, David was trying to avoid Saul and it looked like a pretty close thing that Saul was going to be successful in capturing David and then a rumor of the Philistines comes that they're invading and off Saul goes. The Lord spares David that on that occasion and that was in chapter 23 when Saul finishes from chasing after the Philistines he then hears where David is in the wilderness of En Gedi down by the Red Sea puts together an elite force and goes down once again to chase uh, his replacement with an effort to try to destroy him. Now, you you know, if we're in David's position, I think we'd be getting pretty tired of this by now. We'd really want to put an end to it. We'd, we'd really like to see no more, no more uh, running and hiding, uh, we would like to be back with our families, be back in our homes, be back tilling our fields, be back to life as normal with peace and safety and not having to look over your shoulder every time wondering if there's gonna be an army coming down on top of you. It would get really old. Because you remember so far all that has happened uh, as far as David and his men were concerned is that when it comes to Saul and the soldiers that Saul brings with him, David and his men have never sought to engage them in battle. They've they've engaged the Philistines. They've they've attacked others. They're they're a fighting force. But David has never allowed and never let his men to go and attack. And now here in chapter 24, as we talked about last week, There's an opportunity, an opportunity that he's never had before. He's got the king of Israel in an extremely vulnerable position. What's he going to do? You can imagine that the desire for vengeance would be great. But as we pointed out last time, this chapter along with the following two 25 and 26 all seem to have as a, a kind of a, an overarching theme that of control particularly self-control that is exhibited by david in different circumstances and in this particular account the desire for vengeance uh, is something that david exercises his self-control to not seek. It's kind of an awkward way I just put that sentence. But anyway, we are called upon in our lives as well when it just seems like vengeance against those who oppress us, those who afflict us, those who hurt us deeply. We want to strike back. We want to put an end to it. We might even say to ourselves, uh, this is going to make things better if I can just put them in their place. even when the opportunities seem divinely provided, which according to David's men, that's what they're saying to him, (laughs) Yahweh has put him right there. Now's your chance. Do it. It must be of God. And even Saul, as you noticed uh, later on in the chapter, says, Yahweh, put me into your hand." And yet David exercised self-control and would not take upon himself that vengeance. He controlled that desire for vengeance. But just controlling the desire for vengeance is not the whole picture. Uh, The chapter goes on. And there's some other things here that kind of round out the whole picture. Because it's one thing... To say, well, I'm not going to go after vengeance. But that kind of leaves us in a vacuum. Right? Okay? The situation still exists. Saul's still out there with his 3,000 guys. And if we really want to fix a situation like this, well, you have some options in front of you, right? One is, you can take matters into your own hands and go after the one that is making your life difficult. Put them in their place, particularly if uh, the opportunity seems to present itself and uh, somebody leaves themselves open, vulnerable to, uh, to an attack or to uh, that kind of response. But there's another aspect to this, and that is, well... And it sounds more noble. Okay? No, I don't want vengeance. I just want justice. I just want things to be right. I'm not, I, okay, I'm not going to take this into my own hands. But I want justice for myself. And in David's case, though he's particularly talking about himself and the words that he says here, it, by extension, it, it applies to everyone that's with him. Because they're being just as unjustly treated as David is. And justice is a good thing to pursue. It's something that prophets often prayed for. Something that David would go on in the Psalms and and other uh, Psalm writers as well would speak a lot about justice. The Lord Jesus Christ would speak about justice. The apostles would speak about justice. But there's a right way and a wrong way to go about justice, seeking justice. And really, it's at the root of it, it's kind of the same problem with going after vengeance. Which, and this might be just kind of giving away the punchline, so to speak, uh, a little early. But, you know, with vengeance, the problem with that is that we're taking it upon ourselves and not leaving it in God's hands. The wrong way, of course, to pursue just, uh, justice is to pursue it according to our own strength and according to our own standard of what is just and what is not. David gives us a wonderful example here of controlling himself in the pursuit of justice. And that uh, is what we see here in verses 8 through 15. So your pursuit of justice, first of all, needs to be tempered by... Humility, And these are remarkable verses. And I, I know that we, I've read them now twice in your hearing, and you probably have read them, and many of you have read these verses before. But I really want you to think about this in light of what David is really doing and think, what kind of example is that for us in our current societal situation? Can I put it that way? In verse 8, we read that David calls out after Saul and he says, My Lord the King. And when Saul looks or turns around, David bows with his face to the earth, gets on his knees, puts his face in the dirt, and pays homage. And then verse 14, he makes these comments, referring to himself in a very demeaning way, after whom is the king of Israel? Come out. Yes, yes. You're you're pursuing a dog, a flea. In other words, a person who's of no consequence. Why are you doing this? Now, what this tells me about David, and what it tells me about the way that we go about pursuing justice, is that that pursuit needs to be tempered by humility. Now, let's think about this paying homage thing. How many of you would do this culturally appropriate uh, equivalent, of course? Uh, It's not our usual habit these days in the United States to go put our face in the dirt and bow before elected officials, for example. But how many of you would do the equivalent of this before some of the current wicked and destructive leadership we have in our country, or even locally. Think about that for a minute. If you look around, uh, it doesn't take very long to look through social media, especially. Uh, But then in everyday conversation, we were, Karen and I were having dinner out the other night and uh, we were close enough to listen to some other people talking about the current uh, administration. Um, It was colorful. (laughs) Certainly, there was no paying homage going on there. Now, I know we're Americans, and Americans don't bow before anybody. But I gotta tell you, And I'm not suggesting that from that aspect of bowing and all of that. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about the attitude that we have to those whom the Lord has placed in authority. Whether we like them or not. Whether we acknowledge them or not as doing legitimate things. Saul had not been doing a legitimate thing for a very long time. Particularly as it related to David. He was wicked. He was self-centered. He, we, we, talked, we spent some time, it was it's been quite a long time ago, when we talked about Paul's, Saul's character and how awful it was. And yet David's first words are not, Hey, scumbag. Hey, you who are troubling Israel. Hey, I don't know who you think you are, but, I don't care that you're the king, but, his first words are, My lord, the king. Does this mean that David thinks that Saul's all right? Not even remotely. His words later on are going to reveal that pretty plainly. I'm sure Saul did not miss the implications of what David had to say. But David recognizes his place. And he recognizes Saul's. And he knows that both in their respective places, are there by Yahweh's appointment. And so he acts accordingly in the presence. If nothing else, we talk, sometimes we talk about it in this way, we may not respect the person, but we certainly must respect the office. Because those things are by the Lord's appointment. It doesn't mean we agree with what they say. And there may be times when we have to say, no, I'm not going to obey what you say because it's not right before God. Take whatever consequences come. But David is humble before his oppressor. And that's where it starts. He, before, before he gets into his pitch, before he gets into his defense, he recognizes their relative positions. And again, that's, that's a reflection of his understanding that it's God that's in charge of these things and not us. And so then he launches into his defense. Uh, and, and you can tell by this defense that those opening words that sounded humble weren't just so much empty talk. Because he approaches uh, this, trying to, uh, trying to get some justice out of Saul. He comes humbly, but his words are also tempered by grace. This, uh, and the respectful tone uh, continues, referring to Saul as my Lord, even my father. This is remarkable. Now, again, we're not in the habit of going to elected officials here and going, oh, my father. A <laughs> cultural thing. Uh, but, you know, we can refer to them respectfully by their titles and so on. Uh, I I have to tell you um, I think uh, everyone here knows my opinions about the current federal administration but what was done early on by many infuriated citizens saying, you know, with the the whole hashtag not my president stuff it's like I'm sorry. Illegal or not, falsely gained or not, whatever it is, he's sworn in, he's the president. Deal with it. Work to change it, like we have the right to do. Absolutely. But it's an effort on the part of mankind when we that, that we see that was an example, we see it in other places where you know what? Um, we don't like the way it is, so I'm I'm just going to deny that it is. David doesn't do that. If anyone, and we talked about this before, if anyone had ever demonstrated that he was not fit, that he was not qualified, that he did not deserve to be in an office, it would be Saul. David recognizes that office and even refers to him, like I say, as my father. What he does there is he acknowledges he's acknowledging not even in his own heart, okay, fine, Yahweh put him there, okay, I'll be respectful. He acknowledges it to Saul, which again, puts him in a position of the one who is the underling not the one who's trying to take over. It's pretty remarkable. He acknowledges to Saul the the Lord's authority in putting Saul in power. Every time he calls him, he always anointed three times in this account. But grace doesn't mean, again, that David thought that Saul was all right. His prayers uh, in this passage for Yahweh's judgment upon Saul are evidence enough of that. Now he's not nasty about it. He's gracious in the way he puts it, but he says, you're Yahweh's going to deal with you. That's, that's what's going to happen. Because I'm innocent. You've been, you've wronged me. Yahweh's going to be the one to do it. I'm not going to lift up my hand against you. But these prayers or these statements of his about Yahweh's judgment um, indicate to us that that just being gracious toward those that are oppressors doesn't mean approval. So... um, I, I think a, a word here uh, about imprecatory prayers is in order. Um, everybody know what imprecatory prayers are? Uh, maybe for some of the younger ones, if you younger folks here. An imprecatory prayer is when you pray for judgment upon somebody in God, uh, praying to God that He will judge others, and He will He will uh, put down their efforts, He will undermine their schemes, uh, even destroy them. In uh, in, uh, uh, in some cases. And there are many in this world that really don't like that whole idea of imprecatory prayers. They think it's awfully hateful. I think it's horrible. It's how, how unchristian is that? And so on. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary, states it very well, however. Leaving judgment in God's hands and committing vengeance to God's calendar is no pale, sedate, anemic affair. Check some of our biblical prayers. And he gives examples from Psalm 54, 58, 139, uh, and quotes uh, uh, phrases from them. In your faithfulness, destroy them. It's one of them. Break their teeth in their mouths, O God. That's a pleasant thought. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. These are just prayers. But why are they just? Davis goes on to say, certainly these are passionate, volatile, high-temperature prayers and obedient prayers. What is the prayer doing except what Scripture commands him to do, namely committing vengeance to God? If Yahweh's crushed and afflicted people cannot place their case in his hands and expect him to bring just vengeance on their behalf, what hope can they have? It is absolutely godly and Christian to commit judgment upon the wicked to the God who has already declared that he will bring judgment upon the wicked. We're asking him to walk consistently with his promise and his character. So yes, tempered by grace, but recognizing that these things, the judgment when judgment is... Is needed for justice to to be brought about that God will do it and it's appropriate for us to ask him to do it without being nasty to the oppressor that we're dealing with Uh, to not uh, open up our mouths as we were uh, being taught in Sunday school today from the book of James to just start spouting off and ripping into them and letting them know how, uh, how horrible they are and uh, how good we are, um, thus by our language demonstrating that we're really not any better. So this pursuit of justice has to be in humility, with, with grace, but then ultimately, as we again have seen here and have mentioned as well, but I'm going to kind of develop it the way the passage does, by walking in submission to Yahweh. Verses 12 and 13, then also verse 15. So in 12, may Yahweh judge between me and you. May uh, Yahweh avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And the proverb of the ancients, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not not be against you. And then down in verse 15, uh, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. He commits all of that. He submits himself to Yahweh. However Yahweh wants to do that, he turns it over to him. The Apostle Paul would follow in this same line of thinking in Romans chapter 12. There in verses 19 through 21, he says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. David is walking with that kind of submission, and this kind of the grace element is also there as well. but uh, he's just leaving it all in God's hands. That's really hard for us to do. When we're oppressed, when we're afflicted, when we're hurt by others, we want to lash out. Uh, this proverb is an interesting one there in verse 13, um, out, of the wicked, um, out of the wicked comes wickedness. Now on the surface, uh, this is a way of saying that David would not act wickedly against Saul because David's not wicked. It's, it's out of the wicked that wickedness comes. I haven't done any wickedness towards you. That's an evidence then that I am not wicked. Um, but there's also, this might be one of those little double entendre things, um, a little bit of passive-aggressive <laughs> statement, which condemns Saul. Because just as it is true that that, uh, David is saying, I'm not wicked, therefore wickedness hasn't come out. This is another way of saying to Saul, you you need to check your conscience because uh, you're doing wickedly. So that would imply that you're wicked. Uh, I'm sure that was not lost on Saul. But ultimately... David is not seeking relief of his situation from Saul. This is really important. I mean, he's, he's talking to Saul about the situation, but he's not saying, if you would just let up, if you would just take your guys home, if you would just stop chasing me, if you would just restore me to my position. He's not looking for relief of, uh, for any of those things at Saul's hands. He's not looking to Saul as his deliverer. He's looking to God as his deliverer, and you know, I mean, if we look at it in our own present political and social setting. Well, that's one thing to show grace to somebody and to be polite because of their office. It's another. It's is well. It's easy to plead our case, um, but ultimately. To give things over to the Lord and not expect that the person who's been oppressing us is going to be the person who's going to relieve us. Uh, so we don't that's why we don't believe in the that uh, that famous saying, I'm with the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> We're not looking for the government to help us, or we shouldn't be. We should be looking for to our Lord, to sustain us, to keep us, even as we walk wisely under the authority structures that He's ordained, that uh, we have to uh, endure at the present time. By the way, verse fifteen. Uh, when we read it here in the English, yeah, there's a couple of uh, translations that uh, translate this differently. Uh, here in the ESV, it tends to follow the majority along with it. May Yahweh therefore be judge. Uh, but in the original language, it's not a wish. It's not a prayer, really. It, in the original language, it's a statement. Essentially, uh, Yahweh will be the judge. He is the judge between you and me. It's a statement of faith on David's part, that he's leaving these things in the Lord's hand. So what do we see about David's heart here? Well, his humility, we've seen that, his grace. He himself is a just man and is striving to uh, secure justice for himself as well as for others. He's patient. He's patient. He's been patient all along. Um, He knows, uh, if you think about... uh, uh, Psalm 42 and 3, that in spite of everything that's uh, one, two and three, in spite of everything that's gone on, Yahweh has pulled him out of the pit and has placed his feet upon a rock. And he knows that he's the Lord's anointed, and he knows that God, that God will provide for His uh, elevation to the throne in his good time. And as he walks with that kind of patience, You see his submissive heart there to Yahweh in all of this. Now verses 16 through 20, uh, interestingly, most of this is uh, about what Saul is saying, but there's some things that we can learn about David here. And particularly when we look at this, uh, Saul comes back with a response. Is that you? I don't know how far down the hill he'd walked. Um, I think Probably down a ways. So you know, he's looking up a hill. Maybe he had trouble seeing. Uh, but uh, anyway, Saul comes back and has some things to say. Have you ever been in a situation that's rather volatile in a, when there's a public discussion going on and people in the audience are really irritated, angry with the people who are sitting up on the podium or whatever? And you start getting the calls back and forth and people are shouting each other down. People don't want to listen and they go back and forth. That doesn't happen here. The stuff that Saul is going to say sounds really, really good. But you could I, I kind of wonder, it doesn't say anything about David's men during this section, but you kind of wonder. They're sitting behind David going, yeah, right. Sure, that sounds really nice, Saul. Yeah you liar. Wouldn't be surprised at all if that was some of their response. But the focus here is upon David's self-control. And in this particular situation, he controls his response to the one who had been oppressing him. And there's several things I want you to notice. We've already seen some of them in these prior verses. But... uh, uh, David responds throughout this whole thing with respect. We've already talked about that, especially when the oppressor is an authority. He, for example, uh, that's a wise thing to do. The the Apostle Peter says to us in his second epistle, chapter 2, the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and you start going, yeah, that's great. Can't wait for those unrighteous guys. That's Saul, that oppressor, that person just hurt me. Yeah, okay, and particularly when they're in authority is what the focus here is. Because uh, Peter gives us a one-two punch here and uh, he sort of faints with one and then he nails us. As he says, all right, he, the Lord knows how to keep those unrighteous ones under judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. And that just means those who are in exalted positions. But these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. How do you feel about that, Peter? Peter? When we start bad-mouthing those who are in authority, even those who are wicked, the wicked, as we talked about last week, uh, in the context of vengeance in particular, we're essentially saying, God, you blew it. I know this is not the message that everybody in North Idaho wants to hear. As you all know, we have no problem telling the government no when we think that they're overstepping their bounds in this congregation. But I pray God that we will always do it with the recognition that God has ordained this situation and we're walking under him. And with gratitude towards him, even though we may not appreciate what that person is, is or what they are doing. We still have to respond righteously because of his sovereignty in the situation. And a big part of this is how we respond, no matter what they say. Now, if Saul had come back and said, been very accusatory, oh, you've done this, you've done that, you've done the other thing, and you deserve all this stuff that I'm doing against you. Um, Well, that would have have entitled further response as far as let me lay out my case again. But Saul doesn't do that. In fact, Saul's conscience appears to wake up for a moment. Happens every once in a while in his life, as we've seen before. Uh, and, And this does seem to be one of the more honest fits of conscience that he's had at least for the present time. And I I think that's demonstrated by the fact that Saul doesn't turn around and attack David and his men, who are still in the cave, trapped. If, If Saul had wanted to, he could have called up his army and gone up there and they could have just wiped him out. But Saul didn't do that. Saul seems to be sincere here and confesses his sin, telling David he's more righteous then uh, that David is more righteous than he is, that Saul is. I've repaid you evil uh, for good. Um, you didn't kill me. Uh, you're clearly not my enemy. If a man finds his enemies, he can just let him go. The answer is no. Uh, if, if I was really your enemy, you would have killed me. Is Saul's mentality. So he asks, he prays that Yahweh would reward David. Um, acknowledges David's, Commission, anointing to be the king, and that the and that the kingdom would be established in his hands. And all he asks is that David would swear in Yahweh's name that David would not wipe out David uh, Saul's family. Now, think about it. After you've been hurt, if you've been pursued, someone comes to you and says all this. Sweetness and light stuff to you? How ready are you to go, oh, okay. Or put it the other way around. When you've hurt somebody else, and you've had a change of heart, and then you come to them and strive by God's grace to, to do things right, put things right in all sincerity, and have them blow you off. that ever happened to you? David here listens. It's part of the respect. And this is going to sound uh, maybe a little bit counterintuitive. We already talked about responding with respect. David here responds with what? Silence. He listens doesn't mouth off, doesn't say, yeah, sure. Doesn't tell Saul he's a liar or a hypocrite. We don't know what David was thinking, but he didn't say anything. He listened. You know, sometimes the best response that we can do to people who are striving to oppress us, afflict us, hurt us, attack us, is to simply be Remember when uh, Sennacherib's army came up against uh, Ju- uh, Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah, and the uh, uh, representative of the Assyrians stands there and mouths off, bad mouths, blasphemes God, does all he's, he's not being nice uh, under the under the under a, a shade or a pretense of reasonableness, you know. Hezekiah can't save you. None of the other gods of the other nations have ever saved anybody. So therefore, your God's not going to save you. We're going to take you out. So if you just come out to us and surrender, everything will be fine and dandy. And you remember what Hezekiah's command to the people was? Don't respond. Not a single word. They just sat there and listened. It can be hard to take that. It can be hard to take the abuses of others. I remember an occasion... um, quite a few years ago now, where uh, I was was witnessing a church in the midst of conflict, and I watched a godly, righteous pastor uh, who did not deserve the accusations and the criticisms and the vitriol that were being flung at him. I watched him sit there and take it. just let them spew their bile. And then quietly, when they were done, basically did what David does here in verses 9 through 11, where he just says, here's this, here's this, here's the answer to this, and the answer to this, and the answer to this, and the answer to this. And And just the fact that he didn't try to interrupt, that he didn't try to talk over them, that he didn't try to, you know, Turn about and give them the same kind of nonsense that they were giving to him, uh, it left an impression upon many people. And I think David's response to Saul, who in this case, Saul wasn't spewing bile, he was spewing some actually really great sounding stuff. And if he'd meant it really long term, it would have been awesome. But we're going to find out in chapter 26, it didn't last very long. But nonetheless, I think Saul was sincere at this moment. And David heard it out, and you can tell by, Dave, by what David does, is that, yeah, he, uh, he, he received it as sincere as well. Another really difficult thing. David sitting there and listening to Saul, without retaliating, without, you know, lashing back out with his tongue, it calls to mind the words of Job in Job 40, where Job says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? He's talking to God. I lay my hand on my mouth. Again, David recognized that in his, the current position, he may, that he's going to be king at some point, but he's not king now. He views himself in that position and says, You know what? I'm not going on the counter offensive here. Finally, uh, his response demonstrates discernment, wisdom. David is faithful to his role. This is His heart is demonstrated in his faithfulness and his wisdom. And this, in verse 22, you see the wisdom come forth. So in verse 22, um, Saul has requested of David that he swear in the name of Yahweh that he wouldn't destroy Saul's house. And David swore this to Saul. Again, it's kind of hard for us to think, what kind of you know, vow of obedience would we give to some of the wicked rulers that we have? tough. But what David was being asked of by Saul was an honorable thing. Now how many of the kings of Israel and Judah wiped out, the, <laughs> I mean murdered, violated the 10th, the, the, not the 10th commandment, the 6th uh, uh, commandment about thou shalt not murder. How many of them violated that as they wiped out the former ruler's families David's promise to do this is an honorable thing for a righteous man to agree to. And when even a wicked ruler asks of us to do something that's honorable and right, it's not a compromise to do what is honorable and right. And David shows wisdom in that. So he swears, I won't wipe your family out. And later on, we're going to see where David lives according to that vow. He didn't forget it. As things developed after he was king. So, be thankful when the wicked act righteously. They do every once in a while. You know, the whole, you know, broken clock thing, you know, being uh, right twice a day. Uh, That can happen. Rejoice when it happens. Agree when you can in good conscience. But do not be quick to trust the wicked. David makes a vow. But the next phrase uh, is pretty telling. Saul goes back home and, and leaves the field of battle. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Um, the trust but verify kind of thing. He's made a promise. Things look like we're okay, but he made provision in case there was a change of events, in case there was a change of heart. Shows a lot of wisdom on David's part. So he responds with discernment or wisdom. I think sometimes we just, we have responses that are knee-jerk and um, Again, it makes us want to lash out or we want to go do something else. It's like, you know, here, they're retreating. Let's go get them from behind. Take them out. And we'll put this, you know. David doesn't do any of that. Goes up to the stronghold, makes pre- preparation for what he, he's probably anticipating is going to be the next round. Because again, remember, David's been through this little cycle with Saul before. of Attack, repentance, attack, repentance, attack, repentance. But This one... Um, David agrees where he can, but he's not quick to trust. So this matter of self-control when you're oppressed, when you're afflicted and hurt, is a biggie. It's a big deal. And I'd like us to bring back to what I mentioned last week, that whole principle of loss. Remember that really at the root of so many of the, the wicked terrible things in this world come about because of people's loss, particularly the loss of self-control, loss of controlling their tongue, their desires, their actions, their emotions. All of these things contribute to sin. And David demonstrates what can happen, in this case deliverance, for himself and his men when you control yourself. But when you lose control of yourself uh, in your desires, in your relationships, or in your response to opposition, as it is here, evil things are going to happen either by you or to you. And by exercising self-control, even when it would seem that you are justified to let loose and let her fly. When you exercise self-control, you will honor your God, you will vindicate your testimony, and you will be a blessing to others. So like David, control yourself. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this remarkable account of David, the king-elect, as it were. Your chosen man exercising self-control in an amazing set of circumstances that would try uh, our desires for vengeance and justice to the maximum and yet you gave him grace to deal with his enemy graciously and to exalt your name in the process lord When we are afflicted, when we are hurt, when we are oppressed, let us exercise self-control by your enabling so that we might be a blessing to you and a blessing to others as we exalt the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his blessed name.